listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. I hope you're surviving the rainy day. And if you look up high in the sky, I believe that is a pig. That is a pig flying. Because, unbelievably, it looks like we have come some kind of consensus now between all three layers of government about transit in this city. A surprising report dropped today by City Hall and John Tory saying they want to get behind this Ontario line idea. And in response, in return for getting behind that, the province is going to drop its plan to upload subways. What all of it does this mean? Now, Tory says the city negotiated an agreement with the province for transit expansion that includes the city retaining ownership of the subway network. And the province had passed legislation in the spring that said, well, the subway upload, that's going to happen. It has authority to do that. Tory says in a statement that the agreement today includes almost $30 billion investment in new transit for Toronto. And a report by city staff says that a downtown relief line called the Ontario Line has merit. Tory says that leaving the subway system under city ownership was a key requirement of council when it entered into discussions with the province. The Minister of Transportation, Caroline Mulrooney, just wrapping up her press conference a couple of minutes ago at Queen's Park saying that things are going to get done. We're going to build this. And here is something that sticks out in that report. There's one line in there. Over the next 20 years... The city's population is projected to grow by 960,000 people. That's 960,000 more people coming to Toronto. And by 2041, the city's population will be more than 3.9 million. That is extraordinary. We must do something. And... Also news today that the Liberals are getting behind all of this. Justin Trudeau saying yes to the Ontario Relief Line, but saying it's not because of Doug Ford. It's not Doug Ford's plan. No, no. It's all about John Tory. Whatever John Tory wants, he can have. Doug Ford, never heard of him. Well, I have heard of him, if you're Justin Trudeau. It's Andrew Scheer that's never heard of Doug Ford, of of course. And Doug Ford, of course, is going to be talking later on today in Kenora. But let's get more on this big breaking news on the transportation file. And for that, I'm joined by Ben Spur, who is the Toronto Star transportation reporter. Hi, Ben. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So this was a bit of a shocker today. I mean, there was some advanced reporting about it, but essentially John Tory just started talking and they handed out this giant report to reporters at exactly at the same moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that the Star had pointed out uh, or reported um, last week, I believe, that uh, that the province and the city were in talks that, that could see the city throw its support behind the Ontario line and see the province drop its uh, upload of the existing subway network. So we did have some sense it was coming today, but certainly it's still big news. What's the major takeaway from all of this for you? Well, so I think, you know, the fact that the province is now, we've confirmed that they're backing off the the plan to take ownership of the existing TTC subway network. That was 
I think, uh, the most controversial aspect of what they had planned, uh, which would have been a fundamental change to how, you know, transit is owned and, and probably operated in Toronto. Uh, but then, of course, there's, there's a, the, the other big part of this is that uh, the mayor and uh, city staff have, have signaled that uh, the Ontario Line project is a, uh, something that uh, council should get behind, uh, which is uh, certainly news. Um, and on top of that, actually, that we didn't really know, um, is basically what's happened is that um, in, in, as part of this deal, uh, the province would pay for new projects uh, that, it, that it wants to pursue in the Toronto area, and uh, it would not ask the city of Toronto for capital contributions to build those projects. Um, so instead, money that the city would have been asked to pay for things like the three-stop Scarborough uh, subway extension for the Ontario line, it can take that money and uh, use it for other things like uh, maintaining the existing system, which uh, is in bad need of some repairs, or, or building other new transit projects like the waterfront LRT, which is something that uh, the city has wanted for a long time. So that, that I think, will be seen as proponents of this deal as a pretty big plan. Ben Spur speaking with Ben Spur, the Toronto Star transportation reporter. And Ben, uh, I think the big question for a lot of people is we seem to just go around and around and around on all these plans. What does this mean in terms of timing? Are we going to actually get subways and extensions any faster under this new plan? Yeah, I think that is the big question, and I think the answer, unfortunately, is we don't really know. Um, so the, the thing is, the, the relief line that the city had been planning was getting pretty close to, to getting ready to go, that uh, it could have gone to procurement as uh, early as next year. Um, the Ontario line, a lot of experts I've spoken to say it kind of improves on the relief line plan in the sense that it's a much longer line. Uh, it would serve different areas of the city, including some areas of the city that are um, uh, described as equity-seeking, right, so from lower-income neighbourhoods that bad need transit but um, it's really important to point out that the Ontario line is in the very very early stages of planning um, the the provincial government only announced it in April whereas the relief line subway had undergone some years of planning um, and there's a key line in the city report that came out today um, that uh, in which city and TTC staff said that they had were assessing the Ontario line plan and they say that they cannot confirm the cost or the timeline uh, for that project so I think there's one way you could look at this deal and say that the city is sort of, if they endorse the Ontario line over the relief line, they're kind of trading some certainty over when something could be built for a potentially better plan, um, but with a lot of uncertainty under uh, around when it will actually be constructed. A bird in the hand, I believe, is the cliche. Ben Spur yeah. is a Toronto Star transportation reporter. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much. This is why we can't have nice things. Because we can't seem to ever agree on anything and stick with it. I mean, I think there is a a lot of reason to celebrate today that we seem to have three levels of government coming together to say this is the thing we're going to do, but we seem to be pushing it further down over the horizon. And guess what happens with elections, folks? What happens if Doug Ford's not reelected? What happens if any number of things, if, if there's a change in council? And around and around we go. Let's get to the election campaign trail, shall we? The Liberals are showing resilience in crucial, tightly contested fights to win votes in the 905 suburbs. That's according to a new poll today by Leger. But the poll suggests that any success that the Liberals may have holding off challengers is less to do with Justin Trudeau and the Liberals and a whole lot more to do with Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives. Because the poll found that 43% of respondents in Toronto's suburbs stated they are more worried about the prospect of a Conservative government than four more years of Liberals. Meanwhile, Justin Trudeau saying... 
the conservatives are playing dirty. We know that the conservative party is running one of the dirtiest, nastiest campaigns based on disinformation that we've ever seen in this country. And it's no surprise that they don't want to share, you know, whose deep pockets are funding their attacks on Canadians, on other parties, and on the most important fight of our generation, the fight against climate change. Dirty, filthy stuff. Trudeau went on to say that Canadians are saddened to see some parties running polarized negative campaigns using tactics imported from other countries. The Tories have already said that the Liberals want to legalize drugs. When Trudeau says that is not the case, and the Tories have also said that the Liberals would impose a tax on home sales. The Liberals have also denied that. As for the Conservatives, uh, Scheer is in Quebec and then heading to southwestern Ontario for campaign events in Essex, then Ancaster, then Hamilton. And as Scheer heads to the southern part of our province, Doug Ford is returning to the airwaves. Late this afternoon, Mr. Ford will be speaking in Kenora, and we will have that on Global News and on Global News on television at 5.30 and 6 o'clock tonight. As for the NDP, Jagmeet Singh is in Montreal later on today as he tries to shore up support for his party in Quebec. Thank you for spending some time this noon hour with us. Tomorrow marks an anniversary in this country. One year since Canada legalized recreational marijuana. And today is also the first day, or pardon me, tomorrow will be also the first day for the legalization and production of sale of cannabis derivatives, such as edibles, extracts, topicals. Mmm, This THC buttercream just makes my skin so supple. But the thing is that even though it is legal tomorrow, that is really only the time that licensed producers can apply to make this stuff. So we have to go through some hoops yet, and we figure that probably edibles and extracts won't actually be on the shelves until mid-December. And it's going to depend on what province you're in as to when that shows up. It's generally believed that edibles will be on shelves legally in British Columbia and Quebec first, perhaps Alberta, because they have a private system, and then you know about all of the problems that we have here in Ontario and getting our OCS stores rolled out. That is still frozen in time. We're still not getting those stores done. And so will those stores actually have edibles, or will we have to wait an extra six months like we had to wait to get brick-and-mortar stores in this province? It's a very slow process. But from Rolling Stone magazine, I take this, and I'm going to predict that this is going to happen here as we get closer to Halloween. A police department in Pennsylvania is now participating in the grand tradition of scaring the crap out of parents by issuing a warning about pranksters passing out edibles to kids. And this particular rumor appears to originate from the Jonestown Police Department in Jonestown, Pennsylvania. Last week, the department issued a safety warning, issuing or rather urging parents to exercise caution on Halloween, posting a photo of edibles packaged as nerd ropes. Nerd ropes. Quote, we urge parents to be ever vigilant in checking their children's candy before allowing them to consume those treats. 
Drug-laced edibles are packaged like regular candy and, and may be hard to distinguish. That from a police department in Pennsylvania. And when Rolling Stone magazine asked the police department about it, they said there was actually no evidence whatsoever that the edibles were intended for distribution for trick-or-treaters. So expect that to come. There will be warnings in this part of the world as well about, you know, ooh, pot's now legal, edibles are now legal, potheads be handing them out like candy. Here you go, little trick-or-treater. Enjoy a gummy. I mean, we get this every year, do we not, as parents? I mean, it's always been the scare. I mean, growing up, don't eat that apple. It's got a razor blade in it, right? I think somebody probably secretly put some peanuts in there just for the anaphylactic kids. Meanwhile, American immigration lawyer Lynn Saunders now saying that Canadians wanting to cross the border are being asked very different marijuana questions than before cannabis was legal a year ago. The Canadian-born lawyer says U.S. border officials are no longer asking questions about recent use because marijuana is legal now. So there's no reason to deny you entry into the United States if you say, yeah, I, I hit a, uh, hit a bong last night. That's legal. Instead, what the lawyer says is that they're asking Canadians if they've ever smoked pot in the past. And that is keeping this lawyer busy. Here is Barry Ruff of Langley, British Columbia, who says he has been clean and sober for two decades, but he was recently denied entry into the United States because he told a border official he smoked pot 18 years ago. Four hours later, I was escorted across the border after I was fingerprinted, frisked, um, pictures taken, and asked a thousand questions, the same question every time. It was the most disrespectful thing I've ever been to in my life. That is Barry Ruff of Langley, British Columbia, saying that he was denied entry to the United States because he admitted to a border official that he had smoked marijuana 18 years ago. Now, I'm not one to counsel outright lying, but I am going to suggest to you, if you are heading south of the border and a border official asks you if you've ever smoked weed, you don't say, well, there was that one time in university. I mean, come on. You're willing to drive back across the border wearing three pairs of pants and scuffed up shoes that you bought because you don't want to pay the duty. You're not gonna, you know, you're not, not going to tell the truth about that. But oh, I had a, I had a reefer 18 years ago. That you're going to fess up to. I am going to suggest maybe just keep that to yourself. Do as my father always instructed to us when we were crossing the border as kids, as we were driving up to the gate. He would turn angry to angrily to all of us and say, "All of you, shut your mouths." I do the talking. I'm still terrified to cross the border because of that. (laughs) Tonight, Global News is on the road. We're taking our road show, our final road show, to Oshawa tonight as we take a look at some of the key ridings in the 905 that will help determine the way that this federal election goes. Here's your Oshawa riding 101. Oshawa is the largest city in Durham region. It consists of about 126,000 people. 
It is located on the shores of Lake Ontario. It's known as the automotive capital of Canada. Now it is hoping to diversify as a leader in education, tech, and health sciences. Oshawa suffered a blow when General Motors decided to shutter its flagship assembly facility by the end of this year, and that plant employs nearly 3,000 people. So the economy and affordability are top of mind for many people living there. The riding has been loyally conservative since 2004, voting in incumbent Colin Carey in five straight elections. The last few elections have been polarized, ending in a two-way split between the Conservatives and the NDP, with the Liberals only managing a distant third. Kerry will be taking on NDP candidate Shailene Pano, Afrozo Hossein for the Liberals, and Green Party candidate Giovanna Ramsden. Now, here is one of the big issues in this riding. It's housing. And that's because, according to the Canadian Rental Housing Index, 22% of households in this riding are spending more than 50% of their income on rent and utilities. And that is higher than the provincial average. And for some groups, it's even higher. For example, 27% of Indigenous households, 29% of single mothers with children, and 30% of 15 to 29-year-old renters are actually spending more than half of what they make keeping a roof over their heads. With more on what to expect tonight in our road show in Oshawa, I am pleased to welcome Global Durham reporter Brittany Rosen to the program. Hi, Brittany. Hi, Alan. So what are people in the riding telling you about what's motivating them to get out and vote? Well, Alan, I think there's a lot of key issues here. People want to see some change. I think, um, you know, way before I got here, we've been focusing on the negative, the, the GM closure, and people don't want to focus on this anymore. We want to get through the bump in the road. So a lot of my reporting has been on what are we going to do to improve the city, uh, revitalizing the city, rebranding the city. And so there's, there's a lot of stuff to talk about there. There's the university, a fundamental organization in in this city, um, of course, Ontario Tech, I was speaking with um, the president, Stephen Murphy, talking about how Oshawa is really evolving into a tech hub and how they want to use uh, technology with a conscience. So using technology to make um, a, a social impact. So there's a lot of key issues here, Alan, um, you know, where the bureau is located. Um, this is in the south side of the city, and we see a lot of poverty here, and, and we do see the opioid epidemic quite visible here. So I think a big thing to watch out for for this election is someone who is going to bring change to the city, someone who is going to help clean up the city, and someone who is going to provide more jobs, um, because that's obviously one of the biggest concerns here. We're speaking with Brittany Rosen, who is a reporter with Global Durham in advance of Global News Special Election Roadshow, which takes place tonight in Oshawa. And Oshawa is an interesting riding because in most ridings, especially in the 905 and around uh, southern Ontario, it's liberal versus conservative. But in this particular riding, it's conservative versus NDP. Here's a listen to what people in Oshawa are saying about what's motivating them to vote. We don't need to be going into debt right now. Times are good right now. It's just keep it going without the debt. We've got 37 million people in the country right now, and there's 6% of that 
are living with disabilities. That's people from three to 21 in, in the school age that have uh, you know, any kind of disability that they're gonna need a, a helping hand a little later on. That's six and a half million people. If we don't get folks to first recognize that you know, you need to help out your, your fellow Canadian. Just a lot of people that are going to be left in the gutter and we can't afford that. I'd like to see more import in, in the help of the people out in the, the community. It, it's hard to watch because some of them are very young, like 15, 16 year olds. Their parents have thrown them out or they don't, they don't go, go not, got no place to call home. And I grew up and poor, poor myself, so, but I, I know what it's like to struggle, so. I don't like to see the struggling. Uh, it's expensive. It's really expensive. I used to own a house and I sold when the market was really hot and I thought I'd be able to get back in but then I switched jobs and went to part-time and I do make more than what I used to but you can't get a mortgage on a part-time salary. Now that we're growing and expanding as a family we need a bigger place and it's just that much more stressful of oh my gosh are we gonna be able to continue to afford like you know bigger places and living in this area. The environment and uh, the economy. Definitely would be my number one concerns. Um, yeah, it'd be nice if, if somebody definitely, you know, would take action instead of just talking about the environment. A carbon tax does seem to be uh, a step possibly in the right direction, but we need to we need to do something. That is a selection of people in Oshawa talking about what are key issues for them, and we're speaking with Brittany Rosen, who is a Global Durham reporter. Final word to you, Brittany, especially on housing affordability. You think that is a prime motivator for many people? Absolutely, Alan. You know, the cost of a one-bedroom apartment here is upwards of $1,400. Most people can't afford that. And so that is why we are seeing a lot of tent cities here, a lot of people out on the streets. And what do they turn to? They turn to drugs, and this is why we're seeing the opioid epidemic so visible here. So I believe all these things are linked together. This is definitely a cause for concern, and uh, what you just played there, I, I agree with those people based on uh, our reporting here, um, mine and my colleagues. This has definitely been a prevalent issue here in the city. Brittany, thank you so much for being on the program, and we'll see you tonight at 5.30 on Global News for our special election roadshow. We'll see you there. Thanks a lot, Alan. I hope you can join us tonight as we take a closer look at the issues affecting Oshawa and how that is going to play out in the greater context of the federal election. Welcome back to the program. Lots going on in the federal election campaign as we get into the final days. I can tell you that right now, Andrew Shear is speaking live in Windsor, taking some questions. Let's just listen in. In an election. In 2015, Justin Trudeau promised he would be ethical and accountable. And every day since then, he has proven that he is not as advertised. Time. Partisan applause in the background. Time and time again, he, is, he and his ministers have abused the power of their office for their own personal gain. And furthermore, Justin Trudeau is now desperately trying to salvage his job by doing a coalition deal with the NDP. A coalition Canadians can't afford. Higher taxes, more deficits, fewer jobs, and less money in your pockets. The NDP fought side by side with Conservatives against Justin Trudeau's corruption in the SNC-Lavalin scandal, but now we see what they're really made of. 
when they found they had a shot at power by being the junior partner in the coalition Canadians can't afford, their principles went out the window. We now see that they are willing to prop up a corrupt Prime Minister, a Prime Minister who has lied, and a Prime Minister who so willingly deceived and broke the law, who simply cannot be entrusted with the duties and responsibilities of governing for Canada. All right, that is Andrew Shear, who is speaking live in Windsor. I can tell you, as I look at the live feed, he is standing at an ice rink, and behind him, people are skating around. Every once in a while, a toddler falls on their butt. It's actually far more entertaining than anything that Andrew Shear is saying. Moving on to the NDP on his last day of campaigning in Quebec, uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says that people in that province have started to look beyond his turban and see someone to which they can relate. Singh says he believes he shares the same values as most Quebecers. I certainly believe things have changed throughout the campaign. I think as I've been able to talk about my values, it's gone beyond just the appearances. And people are like, you know what? He actually does share our values. And I'm proud of that because campaigns should matter. And it does matter. And I've seen the change. A big question about whether or not the NDP is going to be entirely wiped out in the province of Quebec because of the resurgence of the bloc. And also, Mr. Singh and the whole issue about him wearing a turban, and of course you recall that that moment on the campaign trail when he was campaigning in Quebec and a man leaned in and told him that he should cut off his turban so that he would look more Canadian. As for Justin Trudeau, he is making a majority pitch to Quebec voters as he and of course the other two leaders campaign of the province. Sandra Scheer was there this morning. The Liberal leader telling reporters in Montreal that the surging bloc only exists to fight with Ottawa. The bloc exists to fight against a Quebec uh, a federal government that doesn't understand Quebec, and yet with our priorities every step of the way, we've demonstrated that we, as a team of Quebecers, are always there to stand up for Quebec values and indeed Canadian values. That is Justin Trudeau speaking. I want to talk about Tim Hortons now, if I can. And this is from David Milstead at the Globe and Mail, a remarkable piece of reporting where he has really dug into the financial compensation that has been awarded to the outgoing executive at RBI. Now, RBI is the Brazilian fund that owns Tim Hortons and has been in the news and has been criticized by many franchisees for squeezing pennies out of franchisees. And remember that Tim Hortons, when there was a proposal to raise the minimum wage, a number of them fought back against that. So, Daniel Schwartz has now departed his executive role at RBI. It's not a retirement, really, because the man is only 38 years old. In addition to serving as co-chairman of the RBI board, he is now giving more attention to being a partner at 3G Capital. That's the private equity firm that formed RBI and ended up giving him that executive role. How much has he accumulated in nine years of work from RBI? Try $250 million. $250 million in nine years. A whopper of a payout for Mr. Schwartz but a timbit of relative returns for investors. That, according to David Milstead in the Globe and Mail. Interesting there, especially when you're getting your double-double in the morning and you realize that the person behind the counter is making minimum wage. 
And at the top end, there's that kind of money being made. Welcome back. An incredible update on that diplomat's wife story. You know, she's wanted in the U.K. for an accident that killed a teenager. Well, U.S. President Donald Trump has now met with the parents of that British teen who was killed in an August car crash involving an American diplomat's wife. But as Dave Packer reports, the family has said no thank you to a surprise meeting that was set up. Harry Dunn's parents visiting New York City to urge Anne Sekoulis, who had claimed diplomatic immunity, to return to the U.K. and participate in a police investigation into the death of their son. Suddenly, an unexpected invitation from President Trump to the White House. Upon arriving, the president dropping what they called a bombshell, that the woman who allegedly killed their son was in the next room. Dunn's parents reportedly shocked, noting that no mediators or therapists were provided. They refused the meeting, saying they only wanted to meet with Sekoulis in Britain. Reportedly told, that's not going to happen. Dave Packer, ABC News. October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month, the official month for celebrating and recognizing the workplace contributions of people who have disabilities and the business success that they helped create. The Rick Hansen Foundation's report about the need to build accessible places and improve physical accessibility would ultimately increase GDP and profits. Marco Pasqua is with the Rick Hansen Foundation and is a Rick Hansen Foundation ambassador and joins me on the line. Hi, Marco. Hi, how are you doing, Alan? I'm doing great, thanks. This is an interesting month and an interesting time to think about this kind of thing. Do you think that there have been real advancements in terms of getting... Uh, Dis- the disabled employment and employment opportunities. Absolutely. You know, I think that persons with disabilities, uh, speaking as somebody with a disability myself, I have cerebral palsy and I use a wheelchair and I have for my whole life. I've seen a lot of change in the market here, even in the last five years. And I think that as more employers realize the economic benefits of what it means to hire more diversely, um, tap into some of those untapped talent pools like persons with disabilities, uh, from that uh, Conference Board of Canada report that the Rick Hansen Foundation did, we found that improvements in the workplace would allow access for over half a million Canadians with disabilities to work more or increase their hours. And as you mentioned at the top, increase GDP by over $17 billion by 2030. So this is not a small amount, and this is really an active time to say to people, hey, it's National Disability Employment Awareness Month, and here's an opportunity for you to really get some employees that are going to add to the productivity of your organization. In terms of employers and their reluctance, I can think of capital costs, I can think of some other issues that immediately would jump to mind as a barrier. What are you seeing as the major barriers to employment? To be honest, I think it's more attitudinal barriers than it is for anything else. So first and foremost, you have to change the attitudes of employers, help them realize that it actually doesn't cost as much as they assume. In fact, in most cases, most job place accommodations are under $500. You know, there's some really easy ways to change the mindset of individuals. One, setting the tone from the top, making sure that there's buy-in from the CEO level making sure your job postings are accessible, which is easy to change and doesn't cost a lot of money, making sure that they're able to be read by screen readers, for example, and simple accommodations like adjusting the height of a desk or providing task lighting. These are things that are easily done. But then, of course, we move into the built environment, and that's where Rick Hansen Foundation shines in terms of assessing a space and the built environment. 
Marco, I appreciate you being on the program. Uh, an, an important issue and important month to uh, be able to, uh, to mark that and to put some more perspective and some more attention on that issue. Thank you, Marco. No, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Do you talk politics in the office? Especially we're so close to this election being over. I say that sadly. And it is so tight, and there is so much talk about how divisive it has been and how divided this country is. Well, Robert Half has now taken a poll about what people think about talking politics in the office. 31% of Canadian workers feel discussing politics at work is appropriate. And 57% think it depends on the situation. Now, differences, there are differences on this, and they really vary by age. 55% of workers 18 to 24 think political conversations are appropriate, compared to only 35% of those between 25 and 40. And then it drops even further to 27% of those 41 to 54 and 55 and older. Evangeline Barube is a branch manager with Robert Half and joins me on the line to talk more about this study. Evangeline, why is it that older people don't think talking about politics is appropriate? It's hard to say 100%. I would say uh, possibly uh, just a difference in the generations in terms of um, people being open about their opinions on on certain things. Politics can be a very emotional, personal um, sort of um, discussion. And um, I think from a generation perspective, the older generations were maybe taught or or the the norms uh, at their time was to not talk about that, whereas the younger generations now are much more open in terms of of their political or or their personal views on on many things, not just politics. And of course, you can get yourself into some hot water pretty quick when you start talking politics at the office, can't you? Oh, absolutely. Um, because politics, again, very emotional topic, um, and it can be very divisive. Um, you know, to your point, just the election itself is is demonstrating that, and um, so you bring that into the workplace, and it can it can offend people. Um, it can you know make people very angry, and um, it can really affect collaboration within the teams. And so what's your advice from, uh, from your perspective? Just, I mean, do you, do you say to the younger people, maybe just don't talk about it at all? Or is it only just, you know, skate around what your particular belief is? I think the, the best advice is to not bring it up um, in, in, the, in the office setting. Um, if, if you do know coworkers uh, on a more personal level, um, you may be more open to having a conversation with them. But even then, uh, be very, um, be very uh, clear and careful and thoughtful about how you express your opinions. Because if you offend them outside the office, that's still going to come back into the office. Um, and um, and also just try to keep things very neutral and not get um, into too many hot topics or specific, you know, views on political parties or, or candidates. Some good yeah. advice there. I'm just <laughs> laughing. I was, you know, it's like, hooray for everybody. I, I'm voting for them all. That's what I'm going to do. Evangeline Barube is a branch manager for Robert Half. Appreciate appreciate you being on the program. Thanks so much.
Oh, no problem. Thank you. We have just a couple of minutes, a couple of things I want to talk about. Did you hear about this? I love this. Uh, Union Station, for the first time ever this holiday season, Toronto's busiest transit hub is going to host its own free outdoor ice skating rink as part of its annual Union Holiday Celebrations. Approximately half the size of an NHL ice rink, this new skating spot on Front Street will have the largest free outdoor rink in Toronto. And it's going to be completely free. And skate rentals included. Isn't that cool? Kind of a Rockefeller sort of square kind of a thing, but at Union Station. Interesting there. we got a couple more minutes to just do a little bit of Florida Mans. Just, I just, I, and I'm not going to give you the full story here. I'm only going to give you the headline. I've got a number of Florida Mans headlines. A Florida man who was found nude inside a plumbing business is facing charges after being accused of using a forklift and a hammer to wreak havoc before taking a shower. Next one. Authorities say a Florida man repeatedly called 911 to report that his roommate has stolen his marijuana. A deputy for the Pasco County Sheriff's Office posted to Twitter a response to the man's calls saying, Stop calling. A Florida man accused of defrauding the city of Ottawa out of more than $100,000 has now been found guilty by a U.S. judge. And I like this one. A Florida man named Samuel L. Jackson, in parenthesis, not the actor, was arrested on DUI charges and corruption by threat against a public servant in Palm Bay. Not the actor.